0: Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites podcast with Yehuda Geberer. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those. Projects, initiatives got off the ground because of the guerrilla. 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Febren. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be become Musa. Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and um, this episode is part two on our great escape from Shanghai, examining the escape from war-torn Europe to Shanghai, including of the Mir Yeshiva. And before we get to that, um, again, we're still in a situation here in Israel we're going through here, and I just wanted to mention one aspect of it. People are talking about all the hostages, hostages all those who were cruelly kidnapped by Hamas i happen to know one of them and when you know one of them it becomes a much more personal thing not an abstract thing uh, uh that that there are jews who are kidnapped which is bad enough but then all of a sudden becomes personal and this fellow is alex danzig who's a respected holocaust researcher that i had the privilege of hearing many times at Yad Vashem and discussing with him. And wonderful person, modest, sweet, kind hearted. And uh, it's so tragic and unfortunate, an older man also. And um, we want all the hostages to be released and everyone should be safe and come back home. And our thoughts and prayers are with all those in danger, the hostages, the wounded, and of course the soldiers on the front line. And now we'll go into our episode. Um, In part one of The Great Escape from Shanghai, we discussed the Molotov-on-Ribbentrop Pact, um, and the outbreak of World War II, and the escape to Vilna. And today, we're going to take it from there. And if you're enjoying this series, then tell your friends and family about it. And even if you're not enjoying this particular series, but if you like the podcast in general... Then tell your friends and family about the podcast. Leave a rating and a review, and we'll spread the word uh, about Jewish history sound bites. Now, in this particular series about the Great Escape to Shanghai, I also would like to emphasize that we're illuminating previously non-emphasized angles of the story. Um, aside from busting many myths as well, which I mentioned last time. So even though this is somewhat a well known story, but there's going to be lots more here. So if we pick it up from where we left off last week, I'd like to start off with some questions to consider. These refugees that were escaping to neutral and in the meantime, independent Lithuania, um, what, 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 what did they see? What was their goal? What were they trying to do? Was it perceived by them in real time? of course we have twenty twenty hindsight, so we are able to pass all kinds of judgment which we regularly do of course but let's try for a minute to understand the um, the the perspective of the of the refugees themselves Polish Jewish refugees for the most part they escaped to neutral and somewhat independent Lithuania um, in the towards the beginning of the war when the Soviet Union returns the Vilna region to Lithuania. So, did they assume that the neutrality of Lithuania would remain forever throughout the war and that Lithuania would be kind of like Switzerland? Were people in Switzerland uh, in 1940-41 trying to escape Switzerland because maybe it will be drawn into the war? I don't know. I never did research on the topic. But I would guess that even if there were some, most weren't, because they were very confident in Switzerland's neutrality. So was it the same case for Lithuania? Or did they already assume that the Soviets would come and eventually occupy Lithuania? So that's that's one question we want to keep in the background. Let's say we assume that many of them anticipated a Soviet occupation. Remember, the Mutual Assistance Treaty that was signed on October tenth, nineteen 1939, that I discussed last week, between the Soviet Union and Lithuania so it stipulated that there would be 20,000 Soviet troops allowed in Lithuania. So that might be already the handwriting on the wall that there might be a coming Soviet occupation. So let's say many of them anticipated that. How about a Nazi invasion? Did the Polish Jewish refugees who escaped to Lithuania anticipate a Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, of, of, of Lithuania, of neutral Lithuania? Did anyone see that coming? Again, it's even less likely at this point. I don't know how many saw that coming. Even if we assume that some of them somehow saw a Nazi invasion coming at some point in the future, could any of them have anticipated the mass murder and the final solution that were the Nazis to perpetrate? That seems to be even more far-fetched. So, the... Giving that all that in the background, I want to, the next couple of episodes, the next few weeks, we want to try to figure out what was everyone running from at this point. They're refugees running from the war, so first and foremost, they want to get away from the war. They want to get away from the Nazi part of occupied Poland, and that's why they're running to Lithuania, or they want to get from the Soviet occupied Eastern Poland, and that's why they're running to Lithuania, and Lithuania is neutral at this point, and independent still at this point. So they're running to Lithuania. When they're in Lithuania, we're going to soon see that they want to run away from Lithuania as well. So what was it? What were they trying to escape from? An anticipated Soviet occupation, a fear that the independent and neutral Lithuania would not last forever, unlike, let's say, Switzerland or some other country in Europe that was neutral throughout the war. So that were legitimate concerns. And so let's see let's see how that plays out. So the Polish Jewish refugees. They settle in Vilna area or other parts of Lithuania, Lithuanian Jewry. Very often, even though many of them they were themselves impoverished, the simplicity and the hospitality of Lithuanian Jewry is, something very important in this story as well. Um, and uh, they try to help them with housing and food, and there's a crisis, there's not enough to go around, and the American jury comes into the picture, and the Joint Distribution Committee, the largest philanthropic, Jewish philanthropic organization in the world, and maybe in Jewish history, they come in and they're, they're providing lots of funding for refugees, they're helping out the refugees in, in many places in Europe, not just in, uh, in uh, Lithuania, but they are the big... Uh, the big uh, helpers. So you have a very, uh, you know, n- a nice positive story here. Besides for all the dark clouds that are descending across Europe, you have a, a situation where Polish refugees are escaping and the impoverished Lithuanian Jewry is trying to help them. And then American Jewry through the joint is coming and assisting that as well. So it's a nice uh, story of Jewish unity too. Um, if we focus on the uh, the yeshivas. So they're dispersed in the countryside. Um, each yeshiva found, you know, they started off in Vilna, but then they moved to the periphery. The Lithuanian government didn't want so many refugees in Vilna itself. It was clogging the urban area, which was already crowded. Uh, for instance, kletsk yeshiva, Verbaran Cutler first was in Yanova, which is near Kovna, and then they were later in Salok, which is further north. The Baranovich yeshiva of Rebbe Hanur Wasserman was in Truk, which is a small town south of Vilna. Uh, Nevardek, if I'm not mistaken, the Bialystok yeshiva of Nevardek, the flagship yeshiva was in Birj um, in in the north also, um, and etc., meaning every yeshiva they found some town to be in. Now, the one who assumed direct responsibility ...for the yeshivas and for, for providing for their physical welfare, um, and to a certain extent their spiritual welfare as well, was Reb Chaim In his capacity as the head of the Vadha Yeshivas, the leadership role of Reb Chaim Eizer, which I've spoken about in other episodes about him in particular... Um, so his his responsibility that he assumed for the Jewish people in general is it, it can can't be exaggerated and can't be spoken about enough. It's 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 almost unfathomable and really a privilege that the Jewish people had a leader like this at the time um, and merited such a thing. Reb Chaim was someone who you know took. On his frail little shoulders, he took everything you know Psa and leadership, and Agudas Yisrael and politics—and specifically in the Lithuanian Torah world, he headed the Vada Yeshivas. He had established, he founded the Vada Yeshivas together with uh, the Chavetz Chaim after World War One, and oversaw its—excuse me—its operations in um, in the interwar period, and now. In continuing his role as the, Yeshiva, in the as the head of the Vada Yeshivas, he had been instrumental in bringing the Yeshivas to Vilna in the first place. And um, and now the ailing and really dying Reb Chaim he passed away in August of 1940, so he's, he's dying of, of stomach cancer, um, and he doesn't even rest for a minute. While he's sick in bed, he and his Vada Yeshivas, especially the leaders of the Vada Yeshivas, Yosef Shub and Aaron Beric, who they and most of their families would go on to be killed by the Nazis and in the Vilna-Ponar uh, forest when the Nazis would invade a couple of years later. It's these people who assumed responsibility for the yeshiva refugees in Vilna. And the, and what happens is that Reb Chaim writes a letter to his very, very close student of his, Reb Eliezer Silver, who is the head of the Hagodes Rabbanim in the United States. He had immigrated there many years before. And I did a couple of episodes on him way back. And he um, was the rabbi at this time in Cincinnati. And he had a close relationship with Rabbi Meiser. And Rabbi Meiser tells him what's going on with the refugees and the yeshivas specifically. And Rablazer Silver calls a meeting of the Agudis Rabbanim in the United States. And they decide to establish a brand new organization, which the original name was the Emergency Committee for War Torn Yeshivas. Later on, it, was to come, it came to be known as the Vad Hatzalah, the Rescue Committee. And it was established in November of 1939. And he did it, he did it and it was not just the Agudasarabadim, they did it in tandem with other American Orthodox organizations as well. And this was specifically at this time to help the yeshivas that were refugees in, in Vilna. Um, in independent Lithuania, so the initial goals of the Hatzalah was to assist these yeshivas that were refugees. Later on in the war, towards the end of the war, late 1943, early 1944, they expanded their role not just for yeshiva students who were at that time in Shanghai or in uh, in Central Asia had escaped there and deep into the Soviet Union. Um, they they were saving rabbis, trying to get rabbis visas. So they exp- that was their, their, their goals, modest goals in the early years of the war, late 1943, early 1944, with the understanding that of the final solution, they decided to expand their role and become a general rescue organization to try to save any Jews, uh, as, many, as many as possible, um, and that was a very important story at the end of the war, but that is beyond the scope of this podcast. So they dispatch, very right, interesting story. The Blazer Silver, he was acquainted with a fellow by the name of Samuel Schmidt in Cincinnati, who had a newspaper, a Jewish newspaper, and local newspaper called Every Friday, that he personally edited for 38 years. And Samuel Schmidt was a prominent Zionist leader and a, on the JNF and, 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 uh, and, and he was, um, in the American Jewish Congress, a very big activist, and he had, done a lot of work for the joint after World War I, during World War I in, in Palestine and after World War I in Poland. So he was very experienced in international Jewish relief in war zones. So um, he wrote an editorial about the, uh, about the yeshivas that were stuck in Vilna, the refugee yeshivas in Vilna. Samuel Schmidt actually was not, at this point, later on he would become, as a result of his visit to Lithuania, he would become more observant. But he was more traditional, less religiously observant um than he would later be and he writes an editorial in in his newspaper every friday about the plight of the yeshivas. and reza silver who knew him from cincinnati he he prevails upon him to given his experience in the area uh, from world war 1 from after world war 1 he says why don't you go on behalf of the vartzala um to dispatch to lithuania um and um and uh and see the state of the, of the yeshivas there, and see what their needs are, meet with their Eizer, meet with the heads of the yeshivas, assess the situation, the numbers, what their immediate needs are, what their long-term needs are, and then we can have a better idea of what our fundraising goals should be, and what the overall goals of the Vat should be. So it should be examined. So Samuel Schmidt goes in February 1940, he spends uh, three months in Lithuania, meets many times with Reb Chaim Weiser, who's very impressed with him. He says, I want to call you Reb Shmuel. And eventually Samuel Schmidt became much more religiously observant as a result of this visit. He was incredibly impressed with the diligence of the yeshiva students. He said there's this like island of tranquility of the yeshivas uh, studying Torah in the middle of the mayhem and, and turbulence that the world is experiencing in war-torn Europe. And these yeshivas are yeshiva students are devoted to their Torah study. And he was incredibly impressed with it. He wrote... Wrote about it in his Vardatzala report, so the the Varazola is so starts providing funding as well. So now you have two organizations, the Joint Distribution Committee, who is overall seeing the you know uh, uh, funding distribution for all refugees and. Yeah, you know, at this time they're also you know across Europe they're they're trying to get money and packages into the ghetto, the early ghettos in Poland and the Warsaw ghetto and other places. So the joint is all over, and here you have a more of a specific goal: the the, uh, the, Var, the who is providing for these refugee yeshivas in Lithuania. One of the prominent individuals who comes up at this point in the Varatsala, and it's directly related to our story of Mir Yeshiva is the role of Rebbe Reb Avram Kalmanovich. Legendary figure. He was the last Rav in Tiktin. or you know, basically he was he was the Rav in at, the, at this time when he had been for many years the fundraiser and president of the Mir Yeshiva. Rav Yudel Finkel, the Rosh Yeshiva, had hired him, and Rav Komanovich was was uh, was a very charismatic, a dynamic figure. I believe I did some episodes on him as well, um, way back in the day. And he um, represented the Mir. So at the beginning of the war, he is dispatched by the Mir to go and fundraise and help out the Mir now that the refugees in Vilna. He immediately joins the leadership of the Varazalla and he becomes one of its most prominent and charismatic figures who did, did an incredible amount for rescue in general, and specifically for the Mir Yeshiva. He was the one who organized the funding and helped them throughout every single step of the, of the way, which we'll discuss because he got the funding for the visas as well later on. But now we're talking about the day-to-day operation of the Yeshiva when it's at its, um, uh, in, its in its refugee state in, in, in Vilna. So the Mir arrives in Vilna, after Simchas Torah, right, about this time of year, basically, in October 1939, and they arrived with about 300 students. So they already had an attrition rate of nearly a quarter of its students, and... Presumably, many of them went home. They wanted to be with their families, it was a dangerous time, war, and they had dispersed, probably of time anyway, especially that it was during the war. So they arrived with 300 students, which is still quite impressive. That's about three quarters of the yeshiva. And they were the largest refugee yeshiva group by quite a bit. Most of the other ones were significantly smaller. Um, and after a short stay, uh, that they were hosted, very short, just a few days it seems, by the local ramila Yeshiva. Ramaylis Yeshiva was the local Vilna Yeshiva. It was an old Yeshiva from the early 1800s and uh, the uh, original name came from the fact that there was a fellow named Mila. Well, I guess it comes from like Mylach or something, um, who uh, his courtyard, his building and his courtyard, he had donated for the Yeshiva's use, so it was Reb Mylas. Chatzar, that's where the, the yeshiva was located, so Ramaylis yeshiva, that's how it came to be known, and it was a local Vilna yeshiva, where the Vilna Besdin rabbis, Dayanam and the Vilna Besdin, they rotated, um, delivering shiurim there, they also hired the staff and oversaw it, Rabbi in his time, took care of it himself, Rabbi Levavitz's son, actually, the Mashkich of the son, Rabbi Levavitz, delivered the highest shiur there, previously it had been Rabbi Shlomo Haiman before he had taken the position in Tarevadas, in New York, um Levovitz, unfortunately, was killed by the Nazis, him and his entire family. Um, <coughs> so the Mir was in, uh, um, in this Ramayla's yeshiva for a few days, but it was not feasible to stay there. There was simply no space. So they moved to a Vilna suburb called Novogrod, which was a small suburb of Vilna. There was a base medrash there that they used, a local. Um, and they were there for a few weeks, about three weeks or so. <clears throat> But the refugee situation in the Vilna area was just too overcrowded, and the Lithuanian government wanted to disperse the refugees as much as they could to the countryside. So the Mir spent the next seven-plus months, from November 1939 through June 1940, in a town called Kedan, north of Kovna. Uh, So the Mir settles in Kedan. Um, Actually, I've been there a couple of times on our trips to Lithuania. I've been to I think at least twice. Um, unfortunately, not, not often enough. It's a beautiful little, quaint little beautiful shtetl and a lot of old original wooden houses were in the Jewish area. And and I think two at least two of the shul buildings, maybe even more, are still around. There's a little museum there about the uh, Jewish history of the town. Very interesting. I, li- I liked Kedan a lot. It had a good vibe. Um, it's a fascinating history. In fact, the Vilna Gain. Um, the only place he ever lived in his life, besides for Vilna, um, was Kedan. When he was about eight years old, he studied Torah in Kedan for, I don't know, a few months or so, um, together with Reb Moshe Margolis, the Pnei Moshe. He was the author of the Pnei Moshe Commentary in the Yerushalm. He was later the rabbi in Kedan. So the Vilna Gain studied with him when he was about eight years old. Later on, when the Vilna Gain got married, Um, his wife, uh, Chana or Chava, something like that, I think was from Kedan. So the Vilna Gain had a strong Kedan connection. In fact, the Mir was very excited when they were in uh, Kedan. They learned in the base Medrash that the Vilna Gain had allegedly studied in together with the Pnei Maisha. So it was like, you know, the Mir is a not at home, they're in exile, but at least they're close to a place of the Vilna Gaon here in Kedan. There's quite a lot of other famous people also from Kedan, there was Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Tsoyrif, who was one of the founders of the Ashkenazi Old yeshiv in Yerushalayim in the 19th century, Rabbi Avram Elia Kaplan, the famous student of the Altar of Slobatka, one of the best products ever produced by Slobatka. He was the head, later the head of the Hildesheimer Seminary in Berlin prior to his untimely passing. There were also two famous maskilim from, uh, from Kedan: Schneer-Zachs, who was a writer, um, and, and even more uh, famous, uh, Meishalev Lillienblum, who was a very, very legendary maskil. He grew up in, in Kedan, and uh, he, when he got married, he moved to uh, nearby Vilkomir, and he achieved his literary and leadership fame there. And then later on in Odessa, he was one of the heads of the Chobavei movement, and he was, uh, he was uh, other famous people as well. Either way, there happens to be a Mir prior connection to Kedan also, um, the Mir Rav, um, and he was kind of the Rosh Hashiva also, Rav Ram Tzvi Kamai. Um, he was the son of Rebelli Baruch Kamai, the original Rashiva of the Mir in the early 1900s, and that made him the brother-in-law of the of the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, Ablazer Yiddel Finkel. Ablazer Yiddel Finkel married a daughter of Rabbi Baruch Kamai. So Baruch Kamai was the older brother-in-law. And he was the Rav of the town of the Mir and also a Rosh Hashiva in the Mir Yeshiva. Now he did not escape with the Mir. He stayed behind with the town because he said he's the Rabbi of the town. He can't leave. He's staying with them. Um, the rabbi stays with his community, so he uh, got killed with the town of the Mir in the mass grave outside of the town when the Nazis invaded a couple of years later. So um, that was a tragic ending to Bvamersh R- Kamai and his family and uh, the entire town of the Mir. So, so, but before he was the rabbi of Mir when his father was still alive, Bvamersh so Kamai was very modest. And he worked as a pharmacist. He didn't want to have a rabbinical position. He didn't want to. wanted to hide the fact that he's a great Torah scholar. So he worked as a pharmacist in Kedan. And uh, sometimes when the Talmud Chacham would come into his store into the pharmacy, he would, you know, he couldn't control himself. He was excited to speak to someone in learning. He would, he would speak to them. And everyone knew this Kedan. As everyone got to know eventually, the, the secret got out eventually that the, the the Kedan pharmacist is quite an accomplished Talmud Chacham. In any event, so he later became the Rav in the Mir. Um, so about 3,000 Jews residing in Kedan at this time. So it's not even such a small shtetl. 3,000 is quite a significantly large number. Um, and had a long history. And actually, one of its interesting things is known for its cucumbers. Of all things, it was known for its cucumbers that it was grown in Kedan. So presumably the Mir consumed many cucumbers during their stay in this quaint town. So next time you're, you eat a delicious cucumber, think about the Mir in Kedan. In any event, almost all the Jewish residents in Kedan were sub- subsequently massacred in the Holocaust. Um, but the Mir, before that, spent a relatively fruitful half a year or so, like I said, seven months in in this town. So let's jump ahead for a minute and follow the Mir again. We're going to get ahead of our story. Following the Soviet takeover, which we'll soon discuss, it was started in June and Completed in August 1940, so when that was finished in like June, July, see so yeshivas were forcefully dispersed and shut down because you know the Soviets not happy about rabbinical schools and yeshivas and religion and all that. So the Mir had to leave Kedan that summer, and officially the Mir was shut down like all the other yeshivas due to this Soviet oppression. But the Mir never gets shut down, so the Mir scattered and split into four shtetlach nearby. And this is kind of like an unknown story in Mir history. In fact, one time I was bringing a Mir group um, to Europe, and um, one of their abayim, um, he he, he tells me, we're going through the itinerary beforehand, and he tells me, are we going to go to the four shtetlach? And I said, wow, I'm incredibly impressed, because... Most people don't even know that story, and you're like, want to go visit those four shtetlach of the Mir? This half a year that the Mir was dispersed by the Soviet government before they escaped to Japan. They were in these four stetlach in Lithuania. And I said, I've never been to any of those four, and I doubt there's anything to see. But this is actually the first time that anyone even asked me to go. So, you know, maybe one day we'll make it there. Um, we didn't go, by the way, that time. But the idea was that this would be an effective way to keep the yeshiva somewhat functioning without raising the Soviets' ire, or maybe even staying under the radar entirely. The four stetlach were krok, Shot. Remigola, and Krakenova. I know it sounds funny, but that's Lithuanian names. Now, Rablazi Finkel himself, who this whole time, the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, who was tireless, tirelessly working on efforts through Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Halevi Herzog, the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael, and Zorach Warav the legendary rescue activist there in Vilna and Kovna, who eventually helped with the whole visa scheme to um, Japan, um, so, and and there's all these letters between Reblzyotel and Herzog and Reblzyotel and Zarahwarftig, and and others, doing anything he could to obtain British immigration certificates. Excuse me, for the yeshiva in its entirety to go to Palestine. He was, of course, in touch with the Bravon Kalmanovich in the United States regarding the funding of the yeshiva and other details. He's busy with everything day and night. He himself decided to be more unobtrusive and he moved to a fifth shtetl, Grinkishok. So you have the yeshiva divided into four shtetlach. They're all relatively near each other, but still, it's you know it's wartime, and the Soviets, and all that. Um, and again, we're I jumped ahead. So we're after the Soviet occupation, in the summer of 1940. And the legendary Mir Mashkiach during this time was Rebchatzka Levenstein. Rebchatzka Levenstein. He had been... He had been brought in as an interim mashgiach after Rabbi Rucham Levavitz had passed away in 1936, and now he was with the yeshiva and would remain with the yeshiva through their entire exile. So he was this—he was the dominant figure, leader, and he was nominally in charge of the Krakenova group. In other words, they sent different rabbim of the yeshiva to be with each one of these four factions and um but ribhatsky with this great dedication a serious nefesh he rotated around all four shtetlach delivering shmuzin to each of the four groups to kruk and to Shat, and to uh and to uh, remigola and Krakanova, and he he um inspiring them, speaking to individuals who were concerned for the future, and they were far from their families. These Many of them were very young. They were far from their families during this tense time of, incer- of uncertainty. So the Mir stayed and really continued to function. in these forced Stadlach for about a half a year, talking about from, I don't know, like July 1940 until they left. And now they left over the winter of 1940-41. So December, January, February, March 19 19- uh, 41, and they're leaving. It's over a several month period, depending on when you got your visas. They went oh, you know, across the Trans-Siberian Railroad and they got to Kobe, Japan. So they're there for approximately half a year, Drop more for some of them. So it's really quite an amazing feat that they continue to function like that, like under the Soviets, communist oppression, a rapid Sovietization of the country. And here they're, and they're looking for visas, and everyone's desperate, and everyone's running, and everyone's trying, and going down to covenant, to consulates, and to apply for Soviet exit visas, all of these things which we'll discuss, but at the same time, in these dispersed four shetlach, the yeshiva still, quite, you know, as much as they could, under the circumstances, functioned, until their final exit from Soviet Lithuania. So, Um, As a postscript, and uh, this is really relevant with some of the stories we've been hearing the last couple of weeks here in Israel, unfortunately, so I just want to add as a postscript, when the Mir students who were in Kruk, remember that was one of the four shtetlach, so when they left, they were heading towards Moscow to the Trans-Siberian Railroad to get out, to leave, so they took leave of the local rabbi and rebbitson of the town, of, of Kruk, and thanked them for their hospitality during these tumultuous times. And the Rebetzin, who was unnamed in the source I saw, I I probably could easily find out, I just didn't have a chance, um, she handed one Altamir, his name was Shlemyr Burstein, she handed him a picture of her five little children. And she said, who knows if they'll survive under the Soviets? At least their picture will survive. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't the Soviets who they ultimately fell victim to, um, it was the Nazis. The Nazis and their local collaborators wiped out the entire Jewish community of Kruk, including the entire family of the rabbi, all his children. And in the classic book, Hazricha bePaase Kedem, On the Story of the Mir, the picture of these beautiful five holy children of the rabbi and rebbitson of the Lithuanian shtetl of Kruk is this haunting memory. And the picture is, is there. Um, so... At this time, now let's go back. Now we're going to go back, so we're going before. We're going back to before the Soviet uh, occupation. So we're in all the way back to Kedah, right? I wanted to jump ahead because I wanted to follow the mirror, but now I want to get back and let's go back to the macro story. Let's broaden the picture a little bit. We're back in Kedah. We're back in. Let's say November 1939, November-December 1939, beginning of 1940, the Mirs in Kedan, the refugees are dispersed all over Lithuania, and now we start to see the beginnings of the visa search. And we start to look for visas, escape routes, and they're trying to look for ways out of still independent Lithuania, not yet under Soviet occupation. But they're already starting to look for ways out now. Why are they looking for ways out now? That we're going to explore in part three. So part three, we're going to devote to the visa searching. And that will bring us right into the Soviet occupation, which begins on June 15th, 1940, until Lithuania is officially incorporated into the Soviet Union on August 3rd, 1940, less than two months later. And that, then the situation becomes desperate because the Soviets are going to close all the consulates and everything is going to be sealed shut very soon because now it's in the Soviet Union. And that's the, and that's almost the end of the visa story. The Soviet occupation, the Soviet takeover, and that becomes the Sugihara story. So, next uh, episode might be the most exciting part of this whole story the visa searching, the Soviet occupation of Lithuania, and the, and then the uh, Sugihara and of course the Jan Dyke, the Dutch visas that will explore in episode, in part three of this series. And I think it might be long enough that we'll have to go into part four. So this is Yudhigebra with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at, at com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.